0: I did ask Aubrey if we could read Genesis chapters 18 through 20 this week because they make one unit, but he wouldn't allow that. He spared you. Just kidding. You know, by this point in the story of Abraham, we really should feel the closeness of the coming child. I mean, all back in chapter 17, God promised that the child would be conceived within a year. Abraham and Sarah already know the child's name, which that's not always a determiner of how quickly a child will come. But in terms of Abraham's formation as a person, the man who's to be a father of nations, we recently saw him pass two tests with flying colors. He, He showed excessive hospitality to the three strangers, and he showed great courage when he interceded to God on behalf of Sodom. In many ways, he's already providing blessing to other nations. One of the huge promises that God gave to him. So we might ask, what else are we waiting for? Like a child on a trip, are we there yet? Will will Isaac finally come? Will Abraham receive the child that he's waited for for so long? But as all of us know from Scott's reading, chapter 20 is anything but a fulfillment of promise. Instead, it really feels like a recycled plot line. A a story of Abraham before all his education and walking with God. Really, the easiest question to ask, and the question that I've uh, talked with people about even this week, is how could he do this again? What what is wrong with Abraham? Does he not get it? How thick-headed can he be? And if he is this thick-headed, why would God choose him? But if we stop at that astonishment, I think we're missing something about Abraham and about what God's doing. You know, our distance and our experience, our backgrounds make it very easy to judge Abraham. But the truth is that Abraham became, began this journey as a pagan with his own cultural preconceptions about marriage. You know, obviously he didn't have the book of Exodus like we have. He didn't have the book of Deuteronomy nor were there marriage seminars at his local temple like we can find in our town in about just about any time. And at, at this point, he isn't even receiving regular lectures in the faith. It's not like Abraham is going to church every Sunday and he's being taught the laws that he needs to walk in to be in relationship with God. He's learning to walk with God in everyday experience. This is how he is learning what it means to be a follower of God. And so to be fair to Abraham, his understanding of marriage still needs formation. And also when we think about it, you know, if there's any place that Abraham has displayed weakness, where he might just not have it, the clear understanding of what marriage is to be, it's really in his home with his wife. It was 20 years ago that he was with Pharaoh in Egypt. He risked Sarah's life by sending her to his pharaoh's harem, but he kept himself from harm. In chapter 16, he took up Sarah's offer to have a child with her maidservant. As one writer notes about Abraham, whatever his beginning virtues, Abraham seems to say the least clearly inept in the matter of women, wives, and marriage. I'm sure that very few of the men here can relate to that. But here's the bigger problem of all of it. Abraham is the new Adam. He's the future father of multitudes of nations. As we've said, he and his family are God's answer to all that is wrong in the world. And like most father-son relationships, Abraham will pass on to his son what it means to be a husband. But Abraham is an extremely bad husband. How will God teach him what it means to be a husband? How will he form him as a father, as a man man who can pass on to generations of people what it means to be a good husband? Surely the fact that a similar event like this has taken place, has happened before, has something to do with it. I'm sure that many of you can think of lessons in your life that it took multiple times before you finally got it. If you can't think of that, ask your spouse or a friend and they'll let you in on it. You know, a great deal of Abraham's life has been about his education, learning a new way of living as a servant of God, and growing in the faith that's required to live in that. And that's what's happening here. God is forming Abraham. And the first way that God is forming him is by changing his understanding of marriage. Abraham needs to learn that his marriage relationship to Sarah is the primary human relationship in his life. As we all know, Abraham's felt okay on multiple occasions to refer to Sarah as a sister. In fact, we hear in this chapter that he's asked Sarah to live by this rule ever since God called him over 20 years ago. And he even gives the justification, you heard the slight change in Scott's voice as he read this section, that Sarah is actually his half-sister. Again, these details clue us in that Abraham's view of marriage, it it probably wasn't shaped by focus on the family or American law. (laughs) But throughout the story, we find that God doesn't see it this way. God doesn't see it the way Abraham does. God doesn't see options. ...of designating Sarah, his wife... You know, in verse 3, God comes to Abimelech in the dream and tells him he is about to die. And the very reason he's about to die is because Sarah is married. You know, it's easy to think, well, this is a foundational story about the father of the faith. And so maybe God is just protecting this specific family. But you can't get out that way. Because what this passage says directly is that he is about to die because she is a married woman. God goes to great extremes to protect Sarah and to rescue her from this harem based on the single fact that she's married. This entire event serves as a way of showing Abraham that the husband wife relationship. Is the primary relationship, the primary human relationship in his life. The half sister thing is a poor attempt at justification. It doesn't work because the marriage relationship trumps every other relationship. It trumps friendships, it trumps every other relationship in the immediate family, it trumps a job, it trumps everything. Abraham needs to learn that it's primary. And then he also needs to learn that it's exclusive. By passing her off as his sister, he invites another man to enter into the intimacy with his wife that only he should have access to. Evidently, he sees it as part of the price. Pimp out your wife, but keep your own life. Sounds like a line from a Dr. Seuss poem, doesn't it? But by by threatening Abraham's life, God shows Abraham... That adultery is extremely evil. Sorry. <laughs> By threatening Abimelech's life, God shows Abraham adultery is extremely evil. There's, there's no reason to do it, even if it would cost your own life. And in fact, adultery itself could cost a person death. That's the punishment for adultery. God says, if you keep Sarah, Abimelech, you will die. After Abimelech pleads innocence to God, God tells him, it was I who kept you from sinning against me, therefore I didn't let you touch her. To touch her is obviously a euphemism for sex. God makes it clear to this pagan king that sex with Sarah, the married woman, would have been a sin against him. And the pagan king... Amazingly, he gets it. When he confronts Abraham, he picks up the same language. What have you done to us, to his entire nation? How have I sinned against you that you've brought this guilt on me and my kingdom? You've done things to me that ought not to be done. Even Abimelech Recognizes That Abraham has almost caused him and his nation to fall into a great sin Friend it does not matter the reason Whatever justification you've tried to put on it If you're having an affair If you're considering it It's sin against God It's not about you It's not about your spouse It's not about the other person in the relationship It's sin against God It's against the very design of creation. Will you turn from it? Will you repent from adultery to the married people in the room? Will you listen to this story? Will you listen to what God is teaching Abraham, that marriage is the primary human relationship in your life? Listen to what I'm not saying here. I'm not saying that single people miss out on the primary human relationship. You see, marriage becomes a primary human relationship when a person gets married. We could do a whole other sermon on that. But in this chapter, what God is teaching us is that for the married person, marriage is their primary human relationship. I'm not going to talk about the wife also being your sister thing this morning. If you need to talk about that, Aubrey is always available <laughs> to speak with you. But in terms of the relationships you value, the ones you spend the most time on, and the ones you guard, is your marriage primary. You know, it's so challenging to prioritize our marriages When our lives are so busy, there seems no space. We're trying to do a good job of raising children or maintaining our home and uh, maintaining our lives outside the home of work and other things. We're trying to be hospitable, as Aubrey has encouraged us, as the passages have encouraged us to do. And then there's not space to just be husband and wife together. You know, Abraham tried to replace wife, the category of wife, with sister, as if sister was okay. But it's not. One way to think about this is in terms of the role you primarily ascribe to your spouse. You know, in the busyness of life, when we're just passing each other, spouse becomes the dad or the mom or the one who does the honeydews or doesn't do the honeydews. But what this passage teaches us is that we need space in our lives in which we relate to one another. I'm not crying, excuse me. Just, Just as husband or just as wife. We can't sacrifice that part of our relationships. And you know, part of what's happened in this story is Abraham, as Sarah's husband, is supposed to be the one who protects her, who guards her reputation. Instead, God has to rescue her for the second time from a pagan king. And surprisingly, oddly enough, the pagan king ensures her reputation is protected by giving significant wealth to Abraham. You know, God is teaching Abraham a very different type of husbandry than what is often critiqued of patriarchy. He isn't teaching Abraham how to tell his wife what to do. Rather, what God's teaching Abraham is to be a devoted husband who sacrificially cares for his wife. Her safety, her reputation, her sexual purity, and whatever else might come in life, in marriage. Men, do you care sacrificially for the needs of your wife? How do you respond when you're inconvenienced by your wife's needs. Marriage is a lot about inconvenience at times. How do you respond to that? Wives, when your husbands try to care for you, even if they do it poorly at first, do you reciprocate that care with love and respect? Or do you immediately tell them how they can do it better? Do you belittle them into a shameful withdrawal to where they don't even feel the strength to try again? You know, we so often as husbands need you to be gentle with us. But we don't want to know that you're being gentle with us. <laughs> and we don't want you to know that you're being gentle with us. It's part of the, it's part of the marriage. And to husbands and wives, you could twist this. You could twist this to justify controlling your spouse. You can try to make your spouse serve a role that only God can serve. Don't twist it. Don't call your spouse to serve a role that only God can serve. Go to God for that. Trust God. And if you're single, if you're called to be single or you're waiting to be called, this, this still matters. Sometimes, you know, it takes someone outside of marriage to remind married people what they're called to be. In the, we call it a trench, whatever it is, we see difficulty. It becomes cloudy what we can be as a married couple. And you can still see what we're called to be. So when you see a married friend struggling, gently encourage them. Pray for your friend's marriages, the marriages of those sitting beside you. We're in this together. This is a family thing. So that means it matters to you. It should matter to you. You know, Abraham has to submit to God's way of marriage. But this is going to take faith. He has to learn to lay down his life for his wife. Something his culture never taught him. He has to learn that his wife's servant can't be a substitute wife. And so now, God not only needs to form him in his understanding of marriage, but he also needs to form him by calling him to a greater faith. Abraham needs to have faith in God's ability to preserve his marriage. Abimelech asked Abraham, What were you thinking when you did this? And Abraham says, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. It's almost funny that he says it at this point in the story. He's oblivious to the idea that God could do such a thing as he's done with Abimelech and his people. What God has done is really quite astounding. The last pagan place we heard about was Sodom, where the men tried to rape the visiting angels. Here instead is Abimelech who responds to God with fear. Somehow, probably by some type of illness, God also kept him from ever touching Sarah. After the dream, Abimelech rises early in the morning. It, it, it says this for showing immediate obedience to what God has asked, told him to do. And he gathers all his advisors and they also respond to this news in fear. The government, the entire government of Gerar is held hostage because of an elderly woman and an elderly man. And all of it is because God cares about marriage. He cares about preserving their marriage. Friend, even when it's hard, do you believe that God cares about your marriage? Do you believe that he's powerful enough to even preserve your marriage? And not only preserve it, but to allow you to thrive in it? this story it might sound so distant to you so far from your own life but there's a principle here that is so clear abraham has shown himself to be a man who's willing to trust god he's willing to learn and grow he's weak in his understanding of marriage that's also clear but god doesn't give him over because of that he doesn't forsake him instead he works with him He educates him in this understanding of marriage. And then he's going to teach him to live in it. Will you, friends, husbands and wives, will you take a step toward one another in your marriage, believing that God will meet you there? That God will shape you through your marriage for good? And that he can even bring joy in your marriage, a tough marriage. It'll be painful, but God will be there. You know, there are some of you who feel like you're the only one working on your marriage. You're the only one who's really in it. And you know, while we wait for God's final renewal of everything, that that's frequently all too true. But will you fight to the end? You know, people are stubborn, but God is also powerful. We never know when an absent spouse might finally listen to God's voice. Will you pray? Will you ask God what it looks like to trust Him with your marriage? To have faith in Him regarding your marriage? Abraham needs to have faith that God can preserve it. Abraham also needs to have faith that God's way of marriage is best. His way of dealing with Sarah is a habit. We've already said that. He's asked Sarah for the last 20 years, anywhere we go, will you tell them that you're my sister? It's second nature. It's built into him from a culture that had a distorted view of marriage. He has to entirely reorient the way that he thinks about his relationship to Sarah as her husband. And as we said earlier, Abraham's learning through experience. God's definition of marriage is being revealed to him slowly, but it won't be put into law for hundreds of years. Abraham will have to walk this out in faith. He'll have to live it by faith. You know, in our culture, there was a clear, conservative definition for, of marriage for a long time, but that, that definition has been swept away, it's eroded. To believe that marriage is between a man and a woman, that one husband and one wife should sacrificially love one another for all their lives, and that adultery would be wrong. You know, believing this will more and more take great faith. Great faith. It won't be in our nation's laws or in our culture, but God will still call us to live by it. Friends, will you have faith that adultery is wrong? That It does tear people apart, but the secrecy involved sometimes, the risk, the romance of it painted by Hollywood, it makes it so alluring sometimes, doesn't it? And all, along with that, our culture says very little against adultery. Will you have faith that Hollywood gets it all wrong? That it can't work out like that? And that adultery is never worth it. Even if it did work out like that, it wouldn't be worth it. That God can bless you more in faithfulness than than you can bless yourself. It takes great faith in our culture to recognize that marriage is a calling. And that singleness is a calling. And that both are from God. Do you believe that? Parents, if your children are called to singleness, will you rejoice in that? Children, youth, all singles. Do you have faith that God loves you when he tells you not to seek sexual pleasure outside of marriage? It takes faith in God to believe sexual purity is a good thing. And that God will bless you in it. Again, if you're engaged in sexual activity outside of marriage... Will you trust that what you're doing is wrong and will you turn to God in repentance and faith? I also want to mention here, we're talking about Abraham needing faith to trust that God's way of marriage is right. If if you've come into this room and you have a very different understanding of marriage than what the Bible teaches about marriage, I, I want to mention that every... ...picture of marriage, every uh, way of marriage requires faith. It's built from somewhere and you're trusting in some definition of marriage that for some reason you believe is right... And I would challenge you to look at the definition of marriage given by the Bible. A man and one woman for life who sacrificially love one another and are faithful to one another. And then whatever other definition that is, I wouldn't challenge you to compare those and to see why your definition of marriage is better than the one that the Bible tells us. The definition of marriage that the Bible gives is a foundation for society, as a foundation of living life in the way that God has created the world and created us to flourish. How does your definition of marriage encourage the flourishing of all people? The flourishing of all God's creation. Every way of marriage, definition of marriage, it takes faith to live by. But why are you living by yours? We need faith to trust that God's way of marriage is right. Here's the greatest part of the story. God is so merciful. So, so merciful. God is forming Abraham for marriage. He is using the trials of marriage to do that. Any married person knows it can be so difficult. God is so merciful to him, though, in the process. Again, he comes out wealthier than before. Abimelech turns out to be incredibly generous. Very unlike Pharaoh. Pharaoh. Pharaoh gave Abraham money when Abraham gave Sarah to Pharaoh. Abimelech gives Abraham money when he returns Sarah to Abraham. It's incredible, this generosity. And instead of being thrown out of the land, Abimelech tells him, choose a place for you and your family and settle there. This trial, friends, it was never a way of punishing Abraham. It was a way of teaching him and in that also blessing him. Do you believe God will bless you in the trials of your marriage? No matter how rough they get. Any trial you're in. Do you believe that God will bless you in the trial? As he shapes you through that trial. In the end we need to have faith. That marriage is less about us. Than it is about God. And this is a difficult point. It's less about us than it is about God. It's a picture of the way that God relates to people. This is why, as you heard in the passage from Ephesians that Grace read to us, this is why Paul can talk about human marriage and then say, what I'm really talking about is Christ and the church. You see, Christ is the husband that all husbands should aim to be. He's always faithful, devoted husband, patient, caring towards his bride. And it's not your typical romance either. We, much worse than Sarah, in rebellion against God, submitted ourselves to a far worse ruler, not only than Abimelech, but even Pharaoh. We submitted ourselves to a ruler who comes only to steal, steal, kill, and destroy everything that's good. We submitted ourselves to Satan and the way of the world. The way of rebellion against God and the way he designed creation. But Jesus, the true husband, rescues us by doing what Abraham should have done. He sacrificed his own life. And in his death, remarkably, he took all our shame. God caused him to rise from the dead. And when we trust in him, he restores all our dignity. You know, if Abimelech would have touched Sarah, he would have taken away her dignity. He didn't, but he still gave all these gifts to Sarah to restore her dignity. To make sure that in the eyes of all people, she would be seen as a pure woman. Here's what Jesus Christ does for you, friend. Despite your sin and your rebellion against God, He dies for you and then rises from the dead, and He clothes you in His love and in His kindness and His righteousness. He restores us. So all who trust in Him can say about Jesus, His banner over me is love. Husbands, wives, will you look to Jesus, the perfect husband? Children, youth, all singles, will you look to Jesus? No matter how great your sin is, how much you've wrecked your marriage, He's so merciful. If it's adultery, divorce, whatever it may be, He's so merciful. And He takes away your shame. If it's difficult for you to know how to look to Him, you you can't see Him, you don't know how to look to Jesus, well, in a moment, we're going to share in the Eucharist. And I would invite you to consider looking to Jesus the time when you partake of his body and his blood through the bread and the wine. Also, find someone here through, and find Jesus in prayer with another person. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.